This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by tavern food. Big week this week in the tavern world. Taverns have gone legit. A tavern owner has is running for president. I think taverns are always legit. Uh, taverns I'm talking about politically legit. That's, that's where the country started, in a tavern. You're going Sam Adams on me. I'm going, I'm going old school. I'm going, it's all full circle. So so John Hickenlooper, uh, longtime restaurateur, longtime member of the Colorado Restaurant Association, before he was mayor of Denver, then governor of Colorado, has officially, to no surprise, jumped into the presidential race this week. Uh, two big challenges. His last name is Hickenlooper. And the second big challenge is he's a sane, moderate pragmatist, which makes the nomination almost impossible for him to get. I did read some coverage this week that said that uh, Republicans in Colorado, when he won election in Colorado, you know, basically through a victory party because he was he was the best candidate they, they could ever hope to elect in Colorado. So for those who don't know, his tavern in Denver, he had one called Wincoop, right? Yeah. And uh, had his own brewery in there and so forth. Franklin, is there anything better than tavern food? Like, what is your, when you go to a tavern, what do you think of when you walk through the door? I'm coming in here for one thing and one thing only. It's, it's really wings. I have a Miller's Ale House near me, and I have uh, Smoky Bones, both of which are great stops. Smoky Bones. I like Smoky Bones better. Yeah. Miller's, they have good wings. Sorry, Buffalo Wild Wings. Still still, still love you, too. But, but Miller's Ale House has some, some pretty good wings, and they have a big selection. Joe, what's your tavern go-to? Guys, this conversation's killing me. I'm a week out from my weight loss challenge fiesta, and uh, I'm just super hungry right now, so I'm thinking about tavern food. I'm thinking about like, a big, huge like, a stew with some meat in there and some vegetables. Uh, I'm going full on out. I'm getting, I'm getting really hungry. I'm starting strong. I mean, nothing. Uh, you drive down the street, you see a tavern, and I've just <laughs> never thought stew. <laughs> I'm thinking of an Irish tavern, an Irish tavern, okay. you know? Like Renzo, how stew, many? They got all the cabbage, they got the good stuff. We, you know, St. Patrick's Day's coming up, guys, come on. How many meals a week that you have are in an actual tavern? I'd average about four. I'd say four. <laughs> good God. <laughs> no wonder you're in a weight loss challenge. Now, for me, when I walk into a tavern, I'm thinking about just a big, obnoxious hamburger, bacon cheeseburger. I love a local micro beer, and I love sports on TV. That's my Smoky that's my deal. Be right in that, in that yeah. yeah, it's good living. All right, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution, and we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, it's back. The dreaded EEO1 form that companies have to submit to the EOC, divulging pay and gender data, has been revived by a federal judge. What does this mean for companies, and can the administration do anything about it? We'll take a look. And it's International Women's Day, and we'll discuss the current state of play on gender issues relative to the industry. And it looks like another activist attorney general is taking aim at brands, this time on companies participating in the Labor Department's Voluntary Wage Compliance Program. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned partners, Franklin Coley. No Carson Chandler this week, but Joe Renzel up in the D.C. bubble. So this week, big development in the world of equal employment in the EEO1 forms that we've talked about on this podcast many times before. Franklin, what happened this week? 
Yeah, so this thing was dead and in the gutter, and it has been since the Trump administration took power. Um, it had been stayed by a court. All of a sudden now, a judge has decided that it is in force. And so, you know, this is potentially huge for, for companies. And we have an interview coming up with one of the individuals that has kind of been leading the charge for the business community, Mark Freeman, with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he'll get into the details of what happened and what's next. And we have with us here today, Mr. Mark Freeman. He is the Vice President of Employment Policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he's been there for a while. Before that, he was over in the Hill working on the same kind of employment and labor policy issues uh, on the Small Business Committee in the U.S. Senate and has been kind of leading the charge. We appreciate everything you've been doing, Mark, on uh, this issue, the EO1 form, and, and all the other issues up in, uh, up in the D.C. bubble, as we like to refer to it. <laughs> so I know you, like myself, where, uh, you know, couldn't believe the headlines this week. Um, I, I think the British term here is gobsmacked. <laughs> there you go. Well said. Tell us what happened this week. Well, great. Thank you, Franklin. Thank you uh, for having me. Glad to be with you. Um, well, um, earlier this week, we learned that a federal court judge in the district, uh, Washington, D.C. district, issued an opinion siding with some plaintiffs who had challenged the stay of the EEOC's revised EEO-1 form. And I, and I know that sounds sort of complicated. Let me break it down for you. During the Obama administration, the EEOC expanded the EEO-1 form uh, and added what's called Component 2 to it, which would have ex greatly expanded the number of data cells employers are required to fill out. Um, it went from, uh, I think, about 180 all the way up to 3,660. Um, so that's a tremendous expansion right there. Uh, it would capture all kinds of data in terms of ethnicities and gender, and then employers would have to match up their compensations with all those different types of uh, different categories. Uh, that form, the chamber went out very hard against the expansion of that form, not just because of the burdens and, and they're substantial, but because the data that it would have generated would have been useless in terms of identifying any pay discrimination. So, so we opposed it very vigorously as it was going through the process. Uh, and then the EEOC issued it in September of 2016. And then, uh, of course, we had the election. And when the Trump administration came into office, we took advantage of that to go back to uh, the key office here is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. It's the, the gatekeeper for the regulatory efforts of the administration. And we made an argument to them that this uh, this revised form should be staged, should be blocked. Uh, and they accepted that argument. And so as of August 2017, the revised EEO-1 form was stayed and, and, and kept from going into effect. And then we had uh, a challenge filed by the National Women's Law Center uh, against that action to stay the form, and that generated the court decision that we saw this week. Um, let me make one sort of legalistic point here, but it's very important in terms of understanding what's going on. The EEOC, when they put through the changes on this form, did it through a process related to the Paperwork Reduction Act. Um, this is usually where we say in, insert joke about Washington here. And so they literally expanded this form in the way that I mentioned 
under a clearance process for the Paperwork Reduction Act. Notably, they did not rely on the normal notice and comment rulemaking procedure that's governed by a law called the Administrative Procedure Act. And that's why OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, was so important because that office has the singular responsibility of approving Paperwork Reduction Act clearances. And that's why we went back to OIRA to get them to reverse their earlier clearance. So the whole thing is really tied up in the Paperwork Reduction Act. Um, that's important because when we got the decision, the judge relied on the Administrative Procedure Act as, as a way for overturning this clearance process. Now, if your listeners are following along, they're scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, Paperwork Reduction Act, Administrative Procedure Act, what does that all mean? What it means is that the court overturned an action under one statute by using a different statute. And that's really one of the key reasons why this decision is so hard to accept. So gotcha. I think that catches up to our current moment, and I hope that, uh, I hope that explanation is, is clear. Yeah, no, it is, and and I do want to – you hit on it a little bit, but I do want to dig into the EO1 form requirements because <laughs> it was one of those things. You know, there was a ton of stuff that came out kind of the end of the Obama administration, the overtime rule, joint employer standard, you know, this, that a lot of employers and HR departments and, and general counsels were really, you know, worried about. They all kind of fell by the wayside, and this was one of them, and so – now for this thing to pop back up this week. So before we actually get into the details of it and what the intent of the Obama administration was, let's do talk about from kind of a process standpoint a little bit more. When is this supposed to now go into effect? Because it's basically right around the corner, right? That's correct. And and normally the reporting uh, period ends in March at the end of end of March in a given year, March 31st. Because we had the government shutdown, EEOC extended the reporting period until the end of May, so May 31st. And based on the judge's decision, her decision says that the revised EEO 1 form, the component 2, should be reinstated. Um, and so if you read that decision, you might believe that you have to make, you have to file that data this year by May 31st. That would be a tremendous burden on employers because no one has been thinking about this form uh, since we were able to get it stayed back in 2017. Now, and, and now that everyone has wrecked their cars or had a heart attack or <laughs> choked in the food, what, you know, is it likely... Spit takes that, with their coffee, probably. Yeah, there you go. Is, is it likely that, that, they're, that employers are going to have to collect, sort through this data and file it here in the next, you know, months or... Well, that, that, that's, the, that's the big question. We really haven't had a definitive answer yet. Uh, that's really up to the EEOC to tell us whether that's going to be required. I can tell you how the decision reads, and, and you know, if you extrapolate from that, you might think, well, yeah, this is going to be required as of this year. Um, but that, that's not entirely clear. It's possible that the, the EEOC, who is not yet in a position to receive this data since they haven't had to do that before, might say, well, this doesn't kick in until next year's reporting cycle. I don't know yet. I, I honestly don't know. I'm just giving yeah. it to you as, as the decision is, is, yeah. is written and, and setting up the possibility, but we're waiting for the EEOC to give us a, a definitive answer. Okay, good deal. And and so the, the, the message there is stay tuned. I suspect that 
yeah. the does not want to process this data, and I suspect that we may have additional Well, the EEOC is still, right this moment, is, is bound to only two members. Um, we had the acting chair, Vicki Lipnick, who had opposed this uh, proposal as it was being developed back during the Obama administration, but she was in the minority. Um, and then we also have one other member of the EEOC who's a Democrat. Um, the problem is that the EEOC is a five-member commission, and we're down to two members because of uh, people, the terms ending. And without a quorum, which would be three members, um, they are not in a position to make any specific decisions. So it's not entirely clear where that goes right now. I mean, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around how the EEOC could could make a decision affecting when this reporting happens. So we're still waiting to hear it, and there's a lot of variables and, and, and uncertainty involved in that. Well, you've got, a, you've got quite the job ahead of you, my friend. Um, <laughs> please, so, please don't blame I, me if it doesn't come out right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're, we're calling you back. Um, so I do want to dig a little bit deeper in because – so we have this conversation that's happening at the federal level, and we potentially – there could be similar – conversations that occur at the state level. So I did want to touch back to what was the intent of the Obama administration when they promulgated this, this requirement? Um, how did this you know, you know, seek to address or solve the problem that the Obama administration uh, wanted to solve? And then what were the fatal flaws? You touched on some of those already, but what were the fatal flaws? What made it unworkable for employers and, quite frankly, made, made it miss the mark completely? Right, right. Well, um, so the intent, as as the advocates for this forum would tell you, was to force employers, and I should be clear here, the employers of 100 employees or more, or those with federal contracts, to disclose their pay practices with respect to different um, gender and ethnic uh, categories. And the theory behind it is that employers would come forward with this information and it would give EEOC a roadmap to understand where there was pay discrimination or pay disparities that, that they should um, go go in and investigate further. The so, reality, so if you look sorry. if you looked up down if you looked up and down the pay scale for a particular company or, or industry, and you saw that there were you know lopsided uh, ethnic group, groupings in the different pay bands, then you you could start to look at discrimination potentially. The, the theory uh, is that that would reveal where there was pay discrepancies, and in the advocate's eyes, that leads to uh, the suggestion that there's discrimination. The reality is that that data in its own, in it by itself doesn't tell a complete story and doesn't give the context behind why those different employees and those different pay bands are being paid differently. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of different things that go into how someone is compensated. Um, and, and so that data on its own doesn't really tell a complete enough story uh, for the EEOC to actually be able to go in and, and start investigating whether there's pay discrimination. The advocates would tell you that that was going to be enough for them to get started. Um, and so that's where we, we would draw a distinction. That's where we would we would contest that that notion um, but but the the burden that this was going to present was going to be um, orders of magnitude higher than what employers uh, have to 
do to, to fill out the current EEO1 form. And let's be clear, the current and the, the traditional EEO1 form never went away. It's only the revised one that was put on hold. Gotcha. And so let's assume, you know, let's be optimistic and assume that the federal requirement for whatever reason does not go into effect and employers don't have to comply well, let's with talk it. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit because the next step in this process would be for the federal government to appeal this decision and say that this judge got it wrong and hopefully get a favorable ruling out of an appellate court. Um, and as a matter of law, which is what you look at in appellate uh, cases, I would think the argument there is is is, is strong. Now, I, I would have thought that the argument for this complaint in the first instance was weak, so don't take my assessment for, for anything. Um, but the next step in the process would be for the federal government to appeal this ruling and to hopefully get a, a, a reversal. If that happens, if it reverses, then the stay originally issued by OIRA would remain in place, and then this EEO1 uh, Component 2 form would, would not be required. Um, but I think the question you're getting to is what might happen in the future. The possibility would exist that a future administration uh, with the ability to repopulate the EEOC with, with nominees of their liking could come out with a new version of this form uh, and do it in a way that would survive scrutiny or be distinguished from uh, this court case, assuming that we get a favorable reversal of this early decision. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think the threat um, ever goes away that that this kind of thing uh, can't come back. Um, I think right. there's going to be an ongoing question and concern, and, and you know, the pay equity issues are, are very high profile and very front and center. Um, and so I think employers and, and other people watching this process should be on guard for any future efforts to come back to this approach uh, in, in, in some later years. Well, Mark, we uh, we appreciate everything you're doing to uh, fight the good fight up there in Washington, D.C. We uh, you know it is a, as this week showed us, it is a, a long, torturous path, and uh, you are doing well, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's frustrating because we really did have a clean win, and, and it was on the merits, and it was a very sound decision made by OIRA, and then they have it yanked away on, on a on a case which really wasn't legally valid is, is, is really highly frustrating. Yeah, no, I understand. Well, we appreciate everything you do, uh, fighting the good fight for everyone out here. Um, and uh, keep it up. Maybe we'll check in with you as, as this thing progresses. That would be great, Franklin. Look forward to talking to you again. So, Franklin, that was a really informative interview. That guy knows his stuff. What is what is the key takeaway? What are the key takeaways for our audience? Where, where things stand right now today is employers are going to have to comply with this by the the end of May. I, you know, I don't want to have anyone staking their company on this, but I suspect that this thing is probably going to be delayed and or challenged in the courts. And I'd be really surprised if it goes into effect. You know, but. People have to prepare as if it's the law of the land right now. But what we do know is regardless of whether it's May 31st of this year or May 31st of next year or eight years from now or three years from now in California and a year and a half from now in New York, we're going to be facing this issue 
in one way or another. Now, the EO1 form and the way it's set up is terrible. It has a lot of fatal flaws. It doesn't work well. It is a plaintiff bar's just greatest dream to go attack companies. But this this issue is coming up, and that's why we've seen the Nikes of the world and, and a bunch of the tech companies go ahead and do these internal audits and try to level these pay bands and, and you know, sush out kind of anything that may be perceived as discrimination to get ahead of this issue. Because this issue is coming back. We just don't know in what form and in what jurisdiction. Joe Renzo, what's your take? Yeah, I couldn't agree. And I, I thought specifically the conversation around whether or not this actually ends up happening federally. It's gone in fits and starts. You know, we'll remember that Governor Brown vetoed a bill like this in, the, in California just last year. Uh, and we were wondering about whether or not, you know, we would have reporting requirements specific to California. We know Gavin Newsom's coming up and, and, you know, we talked about that before on the pod and how he might be not as pragmatic as, as Governor Brown in terms of some of these issues and wanting to give wins to, to unions in particular. And, um, and some of these pay equity issues are going to be front and center in a lot of his platforms. Um, so we expect to see a lot of this activity at the state level, whether or not the federal comes into play again, uh, you know, from a compliance perspective or not. And Franklin touched on a really good point about Nike and, you know, some of these other tech companies we saw in the news this week, some news about Google specifically, you know, as these companies, um, you know, that are trying to do the right thing and take these internal audits into effect, you know, the, the kind of catch 22 about that is then you have to react uh, and you have to adjust your pay. Uh, accordingly to make sure that you're treating everybody as equally as possible. And Google this week actually found out that they were uh, had a challenge with their, with their male uh, uh, workers across the board in terms of whether or not they had equal pay. Um, so this, this issue can kind of skew a lot of different ways. And once you start linking data, uh, gender, race, uh, ethnicity to uh, pay bans and pay data, uh, it could become very uh, challenging very quickly to message in that in the right way from a from a consumer facing brand's perspective. So the timing of this is kind of ironic if you think of, if you look at this issue through the lens of gender equity and pay equity. Franklin it's it's International Women's Day this week and remember this from last year. Tell me about that. So obviously it's a big it's an international day as much or more so than it is a uh, you know, a celebration here in this country. It's a big deal for the UN. The UN has a portal on its website, and, you know, the portal in the U.S. is internationalwomensday.com, which tells you how far this day has come when in the About Us section it talks about how uh, prior to this, the Socialist Party of America, which founded Women's Day, was leading the charge. And now in 2019, it's sponsored by MetLife, McDonald's, Amazon, and Diageo. So um, the International Women's Day has 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 come away. Has arrived. Yeah. Um, so what, what 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 does that mean for our folks? What is that? What is what can they expect? Will they notice? So they may, you know, you may get some some charges leveled at companies that they are hostile to women. Certainly, if McDonald's flips their their M upside down. I was going to ask you. This w. was the this was last year when McDonald's did the M flip, right? Was was widely lit up in the press as uh, you know boneheaded. Um, so there's going to be some companies are going to face some criticism, but but I think more more generally, you know, it's just another day and another time. We just had the year of the woman, is you know we've we've talked about many times before, and now we're going to have another week where these issues are elevated, and we had the women's march last month, and we'll have something the next month, and. 
there's this constant kind of drumbeat drip drip that keeps pushing these issues up to the top and I, I think that's what Joe talked about as far as California and I was saying earlier we're just going to continue to have these issues bubbling up in in the political space at all levels of government and there's just another week where it'll be front and center all right so let's talk a little Department of Labor activity right now Franklin we talked about the the DOL, the Wage and Hour Division's paid program when it first started, you know, over a year ago, the Payroll Audit Independent Determination Program. And at the time we were talking about it, it's, it's a voluntary agreement between companies and the DOL to kind of work out in a non kind of courtroom setting any wage and hour violations, kind of a safe harbor provision, blah, blah, blah. And we were th- we thought at the time, boy, this thing's going if to, if it looks like it's just a, a safe harbor protection for bad actors, it's going to get widely panned in the press and kind of be radioactive. And it seems like a lot of that came true. And this week, your favorite elected official, New York Attorney General Letitia James, or Tish, as you like to call her, mm-hmm. did just that and jumped into the fray on the paid program. What did, what did General James do? Well, she and a uh, a handful of other attorneys general have been threatening companies that participate in this program uh, for some time that they will still be on the hook, you know, potentially liable for violations at the state level. Even though this program may get them off the federal level, they may be still in trouble at the state level. And uh, now, uh, as you teed up, Miss uh, Tish is suing the Labor Department to secure all the records of participants in the paid program. So what companies are participating in, and, you know, it's theoretically the different communications and, and what violations may have occurred, which then, of course, in theory, she will just flip over and, and turn into enforcement actions and penalties and, and go after these employers. It's a, it's a good reminder that um, uh, attorney generals are, in many ways, one of the most important positions we deal with in the employer community they have something that other elected officials don't have, and that's subpoena power, right? And, of course, attorney generals, unlike a lot of prosecutors, attorney generals are kind of like defense attorneys in a way that they don't like to sue, they like to settle. And they don't want to go through a big litigation process. They want to grab companies, run them across the coals, hold them over a barrel, and say this can all go away for this amount on the dotted line here. And so, as we've talked about a lot, you know, attorney general's offices 20, 30 years ago were almost entirely funded through regular appropriations processes at the state legislative level and just like any other agency. And over time, they've had to become more self-sufficient, kind of eat what you kill. And so in many states, attorney general's office is funded by the settlements they recoup and the, and the monies they, they bring back to the state. And so you're, you are going to see more and more of this wage and hour compliance fights and interventions by attorney generals on a lot of issues. And we also, you know, Elliot Spitzer is the one that comes to my mind, but, you know, we've seen politicians build careers off these types of actions as well. And, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, she was a DA and then, you know, worked her way up, became AG and in both those positions was earning headlines by enforcement actions just like this. And now she's in the U.S. Senate and now she is in the top tier of presidential candidates. So, she has made her bones doing just this, like Letitia Adams and others are, are looking at doing in, in other parts of the country. 
Well, I think you see a lot. I mean, you guys are absolutely right. You see a lot of activity in the space. It's not just limited to labor. I think folks need to pay attention. We we talked last week about privacy. You know, the Attorney General of California is getting in heavy on that. Um, you know, that's going to be a big place for these guys to, again, gain headlines, but also do a lot of consumer protection enforcement. And don't forget our buddy uh, uh, Attorney General Ferguson up there in Washington, who's taking that no poaching issue and just run with it. He's got you know, 50 plus brands agreeing with them and settling with them, um, you know, on an issue that's important from his perspective in terms of those no poaching clauses and franchise agreements. You know, this stuff just, um, you know, really doesn't stop. And it's a it's a really potent group of electeds that we got to watch out for. I mean, I would say, too, it's a little unfortunate because, you know, a lot of this stuff is complicated. We look at like the 80-20 rule and, you know, how complicated navigating those those tipping regs have been. And, you know, you really would hope that you have a, a compliance-focused area of the Labor Department that can help you figure this stuff out. And, you know, it's just unfortunate to kind of be caught in the middle here. Because previous administrations have been punitive first, best practices second, right? And this administration has tried to say, hey, let's try to fix the problem. The downside of that is if, if companies are using it as a safe harbor to continue doing the wrong things, and they have this protection by being in this program that they're not going to get sued or, or whatnot. And that's what the attorney generals are going after. So it's it's going to be interesting to watch. I would, if, if you know, I don't know how many, you know, brands in our industry have participated in this program. My guess would be few, um, but this is going to be one to watch very, very closely. So it's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest developments legislatively and regulatory around the country this week. And as always, we start with wages. So this week, the Labor Department officially released its new proposed overtime rule, which would increase the salary threshold for overtime eligibility to $35,308 a year with no automatic future adjustments. It's basically the exact level we anticipated it being. We thought all along it would be $35K. It's where it came out. Obviously, the current thresholds is north of 23,000, but this is much less than the Obama era effort to raise it uh, north of 47,000. So, again, the official start of this rulemaking process takes the better part of a year, but it appears that the new overtime standard will be right about $35,000. Also in D.C., the House Committee on Education and Labor passed out of committee their bill to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. It now goes to the House floor. It will likely pass the House floor, but again, nothing's changed on the other side of Capitol Hill in the Senate. It still is mostly a perfunctory pro forma exercise because uh, it appears there's no appetite in the Senate for, for this legislation. Going back to the state level, Arkansas, a bill to roll back the 2018 voter approved minimum wage increase has stalled, but was amended to establish a lower wage for youth workers, felons, and people with disabilities. This is about the 10th state this year that has tinkered with reestablishing a starter wage, which the industry had for many, many years, uh, and has gone kind of gone away from. And so starting wage is now a big part of that conversation. It remains unclear in Arkansas whether there's an appetite for legislative leadership to go further, but again, an important development. In Maryland, multiple minimum wage bills continue to make their way through the process. 
A Senate committee advanced a bill that would require businesses with at least 15 employees to pay $11 an hour with incremental increases to 15 by 2025. Smaller businesses would have a gradual phase in. That's different than the bill that passed the House, passed the entire House last week, establishing a $15 an hour minimum by 2025, regardless of the size. So that committee passed bill has to go to the full Senate, and then we have to be reconciled with the House before it goes to the governor. So there's a lot of action to be had in Maryland, but all indications are that we are going to get some type of significant uh, minimum wage increase at the end of this process. And again, you remember both the House of Delegates and the State Senate in Maryland have a veto-proof majority if Governor Hogan ultimately vetoes uh, the legislation. Uh, in Missouri, as we talked about last week, there was an effort by some Republicans uh, to move legislation intended to water down uh, the ballot initiative the voters passed. Remember in 2018, the voters passed uh, an increase in the state minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2023. Republicans have tried to water that down. Uh, Democrats in the state Senate there were able to uh, hold that off. And so it appears that effort may be, may be dead for the rest of the year. Uh, in New Hampshire, a Senate committee heard testimony in support of a bill to increase the minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2022. Currently, New Hampshire is a state that matches the Fed, $7.25 an hour. So going to $12 by 2022, it's only three years away, pretty significant increase. Uh, New Mexico, a lot of activity in this week in New Mexico. There are competing bills, one out of the House, one out of the Senate. Uh, the most likely vehicle at this point appears to be the Senate bill, which advanced out of a Senate committee last week. Uh, that bill would go to $11 an hour by 2022 and ultimately increase the server wage to $3 an hour. So it tinkers with the server wage somewhat. Bill's going to the Senate floor and, of course, has to be reconciled with the bill that passed the House before it goes to the governor's desk. But it appears that Senate bill is the leading vehicle there. Some good news, Oklahoma, not a surprise, but good news nonetheless. In Oklahoma, the Republican-controlled Senate killed uh, a number of minimum wage bills uh, to increase the, the wage level there. Again, Oklahoma, very red state. Uh, so no surprise, but a, a, a win. Last year, we talked at length about Minneapolis and the city's effort to go to a $15 an hour minimum wage, You know, obviously passed fairly easily at the city council level. The business community uh, has been in litigation ever since trying to delay that or repeal that. Uh, finally, a Minnesota state appeals court upheld the legality of that Minneapolis ordinance. So that minimum wage increase to ultimately to $15 an hour will, will continue on. And the last piece of wage news is that Target, one of the largest employers in the country, announced it was raising their entry-level wage for employees to $15 an hour by 2020. By next year, the starting wage at all targets would be $15 an hour. So interesting um, reaction, both publicly, again, we've said a hundred times on this podcast, yes, it's a, it's a reaction to what's going on in the public political wins, but again, trying to attract and retain the best talent, companies are having to take efforts in their own hands. So interesting to watch Target move forward. So let's switch gears to scheduling. Joe Renzo, what's going on? Yeah, so on scheduling, we got some big news coming out of New York, uh, the State Labor Department. We've been watching these regulations move through the process over the last two years, uh, having to do with restrictive scheduling, fair work week, however you want to define it. These are about certain size companies, certain companies in, in different industries having 14-day advance notice, requiring penalty pay if the changes are made, similar to stuff we've seen in San Francisco, Seattle, Philadelphia, now in Los Angeles. Uh, these were statewide regulations that were moving through the process uh, that have now been abandoned uh, by the Department of Labor. 
Important to note that these regulations were put in play when New York had a Republican-controlled Senate, and it was unlikely to advance any legislation related to scheduling, um, and now that is not the case. So unclear in terms of what next steps are, but just because they're abandoning this effort from a regulatory perspective does not mean that we won't see some statewide effort in Albany uh, to address scheduling, specifically for retailers. Folks will remember uh, New York has very specific wage and hour laws. Um, these have to do with uh, what they refer to as kind of miscellaneous industries of which retail falls into. Uh, New York has a specific code for uh, restaurants and hotels that uh, these regulations would not have applied to. But legislation could, of course, affect any industry, uh, so we're going to have to pay attention to that, although the process might not be as quick as we've seen in some of the localities across the country. And Joe, what about taxes? Yeah, just of note on the tax front, um, we've got Governor Murphy in New Jersey putting, a, putting out his budget proposal um, not a new issue to New Jersey, but he has uh, basically put a stake in the ground saying he wants to extend the current marginal tax rate for incomes above $5 million to all income in excess of $1 million. Uh, so this would generate almost a half a billion dollars for the state um, and is obviously being referred to as the millionaire's tax. This came into play in New Jersey in, in previous cycles. Uh, Senate President Sweeney will have something to say about this in terms of where that uh, demarcation is uh, in terms of increased taxes above certain amounts. He might not go for a million. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. It'll be an ongoing negotiation amongst the Democrats in control of New Jersey. Also important to note, Governor Murphy has a proposal in his budget where it's looking at a fee of $150 per employee for employers that have 50 or more uh, workers receiving state Medicaid benefits. Uh, this is something we see all play out in Massachusetts. Uh, we've seen it play in California, although not get all the way across the finish line. Again, if you have a certain amount of employees getting state benefits, you're going, you might have to pay a fee per employee. Uh, so this is something that, in addition to the fee and the record keeping, obviously it's a bit of a shame tactic for these for large corporations that might have a, a percentage of their workforce on. Uh, state benefit uh, roles. So that's something important to pay attention to from a reputational perspective, but then also from a tax liability. A lot going on this week in paid leave. We'll start in Colorado, where Democrats introduced legislation to mandate 12 weeks of paid leave to care for a newborn or a family member. Important to note, this similar to uh, the state employment insurance program, the state would administer the program and both employees and employers would contribute equally to it. Uh, and all full and part-time workers of any size business would have to participate. And based on what happened in Colorado in the election cycle, again, we've talked on this podcast a lot about pent-up energy. You know, we think this this bill has a lot of traction, even though it's early in the process. Be very surprised if a robust paid leave bill did not come out of Colorado. Uh, switching to New Hampshire, uh, the House Labor Committee advanced a bill that has already passed the Senate, uh, mandating 12 weeks of paid leave for the birth, adoption, or fostering of a child. Uh, be funded by a 0.5% tax on employee wages. But even if it passes the full house, uh, Governor Sununu has indicated time and time again that he will veto it. Again, New Hampshire's part of this ongoing conversation with Vermont between the two governors on a bi-state solution, uh, two Republican governors, two Democratic legislatures in both states have pushed back. Uh, so a lot to be resolved uh, in New Hampshire. In Oregon, uh, we have scheduled a hearing for later on this month on a bill mandating, again, 12 weeks of paid leave 
uh, for the birth of a child or care of a family member suffering from a serious health condition. Like Colorado, it's a 50-50 split to pay for the program. Employers pay half, employees pay half, 0.5% of their wages, almost the mirror bill of Colorado. And lastly, in Texas, uh, to no surprise, a Senate committee advanced a bill that would preempt localities from passing their own paid leave mandates. If you remember last year, both San Antonio and Austin passed paid leave bills, um, and we fully anticipated when the legislature met in 2019, they would uh, work to preempt those localities as well as nullify existing uh, statutes like in San Antonio and like in Austin. That bill is moving through the process. Uh, almost assuredly will make it all the way through the process. So we'll continue to track that. And that's it this week for the Legislative Scorecard. Another busy week, a lot going on, and I'm sure a lot going on next week. So big week in the hospitality industry, the end of Mardi Gras, the end of the annual celebration. Time to wash away the sin. Oh, yeah. So the, the way my, my daughter, who goes to college at Tulane, of course, they are off for the last part of Mardi Gras, and then spring break starts. So she followed up Fat Tuesday by leaving on Ash Wednesday with her friends to go to spring break in Pensacola. I mean, this is what you're paying sixty grand a year for, is this nonstop entertainment. Joe Renzel, can you beat that? It's a rough week for me because uh, my birthday fell on Ash Wednesday, and usually when I give up stuff for Lent, I get that birthday reprieve because it's usually in there. I didn't get that this year, so I'm super sad. But you got big plans this weekend. Your basketball game last weekend, your poker tournament this weekend. Who Cry me a river, man. Come on. It's tough. We're going over the MGM and National Harbor. We're going to play a little poker for charity, but big winner gets to go to Vegas, man. World Series of Poker. So uh, I might never see you guys again if I win that thing. So is this like real money or play money? Well, I think they do some. They probably encourage you to donate to the charity of, you know, on record. But, uh, you know. You're right, Renzo, I need to get into those. You're, you're playing make-believe poker for charity? No, it's real money. A lot of the profits, the proceeds go to the charity, but real money for the game. Why don't you just go to church bingo? You guys don't know what you're talking about. I'm just glad we got that interview in earlier because Coley had his haircut appointment that he had to adjust for it. And I know that's a big deal for him going to the spa. Renzo teed up this whole outtake segment just so he could get that that little that little nugget in that's right i've got beautiful hair i'm not going to deny it i don't know i might be bubble boy but you're spa boy so we'll just go with that so so franklin you're ringing in lent with uh a trip out into the wild this weekend the ringing of shotguns that's yeah yes i have a quail creek down in okeechobee florida if you want to hunt quail or pheasant they will take care of you they actually have guided hunts i think for turkey and deer and boar as well but we will be uh we'll be hunting pheasant quail right into uh, Bay Hill. It's uh, it's a big weekend for the Coley household. So. Good Lord. All right, see you next week.